Hello. I'm here again with joy in my heart and loads of self-related ideas to share. I don't mean myself, though I do feature a little bit. I'm talking about the self and my ideas, which are drawn from 30 years as a talk therapist, helping people discover themselves, find solutions and new directions in their lives. Research has shown that doing things with our hands is good for us. It makes us happier, it enhances our mental health and our spiritual well-being. And feeling that we're useful and have purpose affects our sense of self and our outlook on life. According to psychologist Carrie Barron in her book, The Creativity Cure, How to Build Happiness with Your Own Two Hands, well, I don't know who else's hands you'd use, but anyway, that's publishers for you. Um, how to build happiness with your own two hands. Creative action can even function as a natural antidepressant, she says. And at the moment, there's a strong case for doing things with our hands. This may be on our minds a little more than usual at a time when many of us are finding we have extra time to fill. I'll be talking about why practical hobbies and pastimes are good for you and I'll explain why knitting is only one of many things I won't be doing during lockdown. And I promise too that I won't keep banging on about lockdown, there's quite enough of that in cyberspace. But this is relevant given that I've had a couple of questions about using time constructively. One comment that we received was that it's all very well being bombarded with emails telling us to do a course, learn an instrument, take up a new hobby. But actually, there's no time when you've got three kids, homeschooling, a family to feed, and all the rest of the tensions and pressures that are put on many people because of the circumstances we're all living in. So I sympathise, and I'm not suggesting that you necessarily have loads of spare time to just indulge in a hobby. But for those people who have asked or who are interested, that's why I'm delivering this episode. So by doing things with your hands, I mean activities where you could do something using practical skills. Whether you're a novice or an expert, making, mending and doing does more for you than you might expect. For one thing, it acts as a buffer against stress. So ultimately, doing things can benefit how you feel physically, as well as your psychological well-being. The stress-relieving benefits in doing practical activities derive from the value in simple, repetitive action. Using the hands to make, fix or mend means that pastimes like knitting and gardening allow the mind to rest, and at the same time gives it the freedom to wander and daydream. This produces exactly the right conditions from which inspiration and creativity can spring forth. When we're freed from the cares and concerns that seem to take up so much of our time, the mind does what it does best, inventing and problem solving. An example of this came from Jess, a former client, who told me that being able to, as she put it, lose herself in her art allowed her to rebuild her confidence and self-esteem following a personal tragedy. It gave me space to focus on what I was doing with my hands while my mind wandered freely. It seemed to distract me from my troublesome thoughts and I got a respite. 
It felt like a kind of healing, she said. Most of us know that making things provides pleasure and also instills a sense of meaning and pride. Doing something practical where we can see the end result makes us feel alive and effective. So it's an antidote to the stresses of modern life because it creates a sense of fulfilment that generally isn't provided by work. There was a time when our work provided something tangible. You'd very likely have been making something from raw materials to finished product, or even a part of the process, but you'd witness something transformed by your commitment. At the end of the day or week, there would be visible proof of your efforts, something to say, I exist, every time you looked at it or remembered it. In earlier times, it was the same in the home. There were fewer services to provide the necessities of life and most households would have been taking care of their own cooking, sewing and many other areas besides. If you were an artisan, then of course you live by the application of your practical skills. But for most of us, work these days provides little in the way of evidence that our time has been spent productively. Gazing at a computer spreadsheet, however elaborate it is, just doesn't produce the same glow of satisfaction as, say, a furrow tidily ploughed, a freshly baked loaf, or a neatly soldered water pipe. Whether it's gardening, playing a musical instrument, cooking or carpentry, when you make and do, it's doing something uniquely for you and you alone. Irrespective of your achievements elsewhere or lack of them, you live in the moment for the task in hand. It results in a kind of success, but it isn't dependent on you previously having had success elsewhere in your life. It's completely democratic. Making things or learning to make them is open to everyone, and the material standards by which we are so often judged elsewhere in our lives have no relevance in the privacy of our hobbies and pastimes. We can be bottom of the heap in life, or feel we are, but in your own space, working with your hands, it is how you go about it that's important, as much as what you produce. You'll be the judge of your efforts, not judged or criticised according to somebody else's standards. Since most things require a series of steps, a list of materials and stages of production, you have to focus on each step rather than ultimate success or failure. While the reward might come from the finished product, the benefit comes from the doing, not the completing. It's that old story of the journey, not the destination, being the most important thing. Even high art, which, if it sees the light of day, will eventually be exposed to the appraisal of an audience, must first submit to the judgment of the person who creates it, the artist. As a writer, I know this. My writing is first and foremost for me. If it is eventually read, appraised and approved by others, that's a completely separate exercise, and one that is largely outside my control. How and what I write, though, is mine and mine alone. And it is something I can control. That's my main motivation in writing. And though I'm aware that there will be an audience if I'm lucky and that my work must be engaging and understandable, I would say that these are secondary aspects and they're more like rules I must comply with if I want to engage my reader, 
rather than my reason for writing in the first place. This is the case made by American philosopher Matthew Crawford in his book The Case for Working with Your Hands or Why Office Work is Bad for Us and Fixing Things Feels Good. Says it all really, doesn't it? After working for several years in impressive sounding but unfulfilling office jobs, he now runs a motorcycle repair business in his hometown of Richmond, Virginia. His informative and inspiring book explains how we've come to devalue manual competence and why modern work can feel so unfulfilling. It's his firm conviction that the skilled trades car repair, plumbing, carpentry, electrical work, stonemasonry, the list goes on, offer a way of thinking about life and relating to the world that we could all do with adopting. The important thing, he says, is whether a job entails using your judgment or not. But even in those trades, as know-how has been broken down by systems of mass production, people who work with their hands have increasingly found their expertise has been fragmented. Whereas at one time a single person would have been responsible for making a single item, as industrialization took over, many jobs were broken down into a series of discrete steps that could be divvied up and doled out to several people, each responsible for a part of the whole. In this scenario, nobody sees the overall picture and any problems in production are solved by a management system rather than a skilled artisan. Thus, a production team replaces the skilled craftsperson in a process Crawford calls the degradation of work. The demise of craftsmanship, a gender-neutral term, by the way, has brought with it a gradual loss of expertise, of mastery, in fact, a tragic loss of identity in many trades, and even more socially damaging, a dumbing down of a large group of people disparagingly dismissed as the workforce. But I'm going off-piste here again. So, to return to the knitting analogy, I'd better pick up a stitch where I left off. I was speaking about the pleasure to be found in using our hands to make things, but pleasure is an abstract term which can mean many things. Perhaps that, like other processes, I've talked about here, can be broken down into some contributory elements to make it easier to grasp. As well as stimulating creativity, making stuff brings with it all sorts of other factors that can contribute to satisfaction and even personal growth. In knitting, you might say that the satisfaction comes from knowing that you have produced a finished article. But there are constant smaller pleasures to be found in choosing colours, quality of the yarn, casting on, completing a row, casting off. And by the way, this description is necessarily limited by my sketchy knowledge of knitting, so apologies to any serious knitters out there. By the way, again, uh, one thing I discovered while looking into this topic is just how many men are knitting. So it's not unmasculine at all, and uh, there are some tremendous YouTube videos very interesting and creative people displaying their knitting skills. I was taught to knit in school, but that was another era when education was about more than a basic set of skills to, to prepare us for the workplace. As to why so many practical skills have been dropped from the curriculum these days, well, don't get me started. Finding pleasure in what we're doing right now, at this moment, 
can also create a state of mindfulness as our focus narrows to the task in hand and to the exclusion of everything else. This is akin to the Japanese art of ikigai or ikigai. As I understand it, ikigai is a concept that means a reason for being. According to neuroscientist and author Ken Moji, ikigai gives your life purpose while giving you the grit to carry on. It's about discovering those of life's pleasures that have meaning for you, and it resides in the realm of small things. Likewise, it is the joy of small things that gives us enjoyment in using our hands to produce something. It feeds a part of our psyche which is often undernourished by what counts for work these days. You can't find the same degree of satisfaction in typing a sentence on a computer, and I should know, as you can in producing something physical like a row of knitting, a pot of jam, or a coffee table. Maybe this is why many writers prefer to write longhand rather than using a word processor. Personally, I always write on the keyboard unless I'm stuck without one and I have to use a notebook. But you get my drift. Many authors write everything longhand, sometimes several times, before they arrive at the final draft, which is then typed up, often by somebody else. Back to making things... That's good for you too in other ways, because the calming and reassuring effect of seeing the result of your efforts brings satisfaction. And this is derived from knowing what you know, discovering what you don't, and applying that new understanding to doing and learning. Completing a task and looking at what you made brings solace. It says, you exist. I've noticed that both in my own life and the lives of the people I've spoken to, when we are distressed, we often turn to doing something practical. This takes us away from the torment and into a deeper place inside ourselves. Some years ago, a close friend of mine, Connor, went through a difficult time with a business partner who was, as it turned out, stealing from the business. The process of identifying where the money was going gathering evidence, accusing his partner and eventually extricating himself before the business finally collapsed, had taken a terrible toll on Connor. Nevertheless, it hadn't dragged him down completely and he'd managed to remain pretty buoyant and upbeat during his troubles, or so it seemed. When I asked him how he'd done it, he told me when he was at his lowest point, he'd thrown himself into his hobby of photography to distract himself. Each day after work, he'd set out with his camera gear for about an hour or two, and it was this immersion in something for himself that took him away from his worries. It also helped him protect his self-belief and restore his confidence, he said. In my clinical work, I've never actually suggested to any of my clients that they take up a hobby, but maybe I should. The health information site WebMD is just one source that recommends it. In addition to traditional treatments such as talk therapy, medication, exercise and relaxation techniques, WebMD recommends getting involved in meaningful activities and diving into creative pursuits to rediscover your interests, talents and strengths. Mental health charities around the world make similar suggestions. They don't specifically mention photography, or knitting for that matter, 
But Bryce Evans, in his TED talk on therapeutic photography, certainly does. At the TED event in Vancouver in 2015, he explained how photography reconnected him with himself after years of anxiety and depression had blighted his life from childhood. And Ryan Fluger, another TED contributor in 2017, said, I was using my camera as my therapist to refind his identity, reconnect with his estranged father and build a successful professional career. These are just two examples, but in 2018, researchers at Lancaster University in the UK found that taking a daily photo improved well-being. In their study, doctors Liz Brewster and Andrew Cox said that taking a moment to be mindful and looking for something different or unusual in the day were seen as positive well-being benefits of the habit, the habit of taking a daily photograph, that is. But these benefits don't belong to any particular art form. Photography provides focus, quite literally, and it gets you out of your head and into that particular state of engrossment shared with meditative practices like mindfulness. It also allows you to tap into the beauty of nature, reconnect with yourself and test your skills and abilities. But that can be said of any applied art form. The benefits are not restricted to photography, Art therapy exists specifically as a medium to address confusing and distressing emotional issues, according to the British Association of Art Therapists. Which brings me to flow. Flow describes the emotions experienced when an activity is going favourably. That feeling of absorption and detachment from outside events known as being in the zone. According to the originator of the concept, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the defining feature of flow is the intense involvement in a moment-to-moment -moment activity that can only be achieved through an individual's personal effort and creativity. Csikszentmihalyi uses the term optimal experience to describe these occasions when we feel exhilaration, a sense of enjoyment, the sort of moments that we can cherish and remember. He says these moments are often not passive, receptive, relaxing times. They tend to occur when a person's body or mind is stretched to its limit in a voluntary effort to accomplish something that is difficult or worthwhile. As it is said, most of us thrive on a challenge. Do I apply these ideas in my life? Of course I do. Since I was a kid, I've loved designing, making, mending and even building things. I was very lucky in my childhood education to be at a school that taught us engineering, carpentry, agriculture, art and many, many practical skills. And that kind of stayed with me. Growing up in the 1950s, there was little choice but to make and mend. If you needed something in post-war Britain at that time, you went out to find something cheap to fix it up. My first motorcycles, cars and even a boat were made serviceable this way. Though I don't fix cars anymore, I've used doing stuff as a respite from my rather cerebral full-time work for over 50 years. During lockdown, which has been a boon for my output, I change into my overalls one day a week and take a break from my desk and computer. It never fails to satisfy and refresh me, and it routinely replenishes my ideas. I recommend it to anyone. 
I've always got a list of things to do. Cooking's always been a welcome refuge for me, and my wife is happy to leave that part of the chores to me anyway. So I cook most days. And there's carpentry, if that's what you call my efforts. As I said earlier, I won't be knitting. I won't have time. So what do you do? How do you get your respite? How do you create those private moments of absorption that I've been speaking about? Is there something you've been promising yourself that you'd like to learn when you have time? Or maybe now is that time? I'll see you next time. All the best. <laughs>